Do you have an unexpected story to tell or know someone who does? We'd love to have you on the pod. Please apply at please don't tell anyone pod at gmail.com or follow our application link in bio of our Instagram, please don't tell anyone pod or TikTok account. And I was yeah. like, thou shalt not kill as a commandment, and I have killed someone. Hey, and thanks for coming back to Please Don't Tell Anyone. I'm Molly Clark, your host, and this is the podcast where you hear unexpected stories by ordinary people. I go and blind to all my interviews so that I can hear the story firsthand, just like you. Don't tell anyone, I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell I said, please don't tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone. Don't tell I said, please don't tell anyone. I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. When I was in the military, I killed 13 men in the line of duty. I now live with PTSD and the repercussions of which include nightmares, flashbacks, and a laundry list of medications and a service dog. I've tried multiple experimental treatments along with traditional therapy to nearly no avail. Having to live with the act of killing another human being, no matter what the circumstance, haunts you. I also gave these men their last rites in an effort to somehow make peace with them as we were both just quote-unquote doing our jobs. I have gone to damn near extreme lengths to try to balance the karma in my life. As I said to you, I've never had a submission like that. To be honest, I've always wanted a submission like that. That sounds really fucked up, but like, <laughs> it's something that people don't talk about. And what a painful thing to not talk about, you know? I mean, you know. Yeah, and I'm probably just going to cry a lot. That's, That's probably fine. just going to, it's, and it's very weird to hear it back. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. What made you pursue a career in the military? And how old were you when this all started? Um, so I was 20. Um, and, or I guess technically I enlisted like days before my 20th birthday. Um, but I actually went to boot camp and hit like hit my first unit um, when I was 20. Um, I had finished college early and I didn't have really good job prospects. So I said, I'm... I'm going to join the military. I came from a pretty heavy, heavily military family. Um, my grandfather was in. A lot of my, most of my uncles were in the military. And I said, well, I guess now is a good a, good a time as any. And my dad always wanted me to join because his brothers had joined. And he was like, well, you know, it's, it's free health care for the rest of your life. And that mm-hmm. was something we, I grew up in poverty. That was something we really struggled with. Um, was like healthcare costs Um, and he was like well then you can you you know you'll just be taken care of for the rest of your life they'll pay for college like you'll get everything you want this sort of magical idea yeah Um, and then growing up like like I remember 9-11 and like growing up in the like early 2000s that very like patrioticness Mm. and I grew up in a small town we had guys from my town die and that was a very romantic thing to do was to like go to this foreign country and die for your country like that was very romanticized where I'm from yeah yeah that makes sense wow yeah because I was three or four when 9-11 happened so I really don't remember it how old were you six I think six or seven I was in first grade that's definitely more of a brain formation oh I can tell you so it was it was the most beautiful day in September it was the first day of like real fall weather for us that was cool 
I had on a blue cardigan. I oh remember gosh, that really my brother remember. made me grilled cheese. Like it is, it is a core memory. Like I can tell wow. you a lot about that day, even for wow. being so young. It's, it's probably like my first core memory of something uh, other than I remember the turn of the millennium and like staying up till midnight for that. But um, that's like my first core memory that involves society, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Just for our listeners, we're not going to say the branch of the military that our guest was in. I could see listening to this why being like, why aren't they? They just keep saying military. So I just wanted to clear that up yeah. to, for her privacy. When you said earlier this idea of dying for your country, when you were joining, did you ever think like that you were going to die for your country? Like, was that a thought or? Oh, yeah, because you so everybody in boot camp or basic or whatever your branch calls it, you get a everybody gets their headshot and that headshot is what they show on the news when you die. It's what goes Mm. on the in memoriam posters like that's what you're remembered as so i've never seen mine really um, you get it in an envelope like you know you like school pictures you get an envelope when you graduate and i handed it to my family and i have never seen it i i think i'm i might have looked at it once because i have a vague idea of what it looks like but i refuse to look at it because it's this like like that's what they show everyone when you die yeah. Like, why would I want to look at that? Yeah. Ah, that's really interesting. So, um, when you enlist, just as someone who's really ignorant to the military, what is your commitment that you're saying? Um, so, generally, it's between four and eight years. And there's some, like, intricacies of, like, what if that is active duty time and what is reserve, which is, like, the one weekend a month idea and then there's this time where they can, you're out of the military, but they can still call you back, which is like if World War Three popped off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I enlisted for six years um, okay. was my initial commitment. And is the thought that you enlist, you are dedicating six years of your life to go anywhere, do anything. You're basically giving up your like civilianness i'm sorry i'm gonna botch some of these questions just because no I don't no no know. that that was a good question no so it's to me like yeah i didn't necessarily have a say in where i was gonna go or what i was gonna do but that that's part of the like fun of it is yeah. like i could go anywhere in the world i could go do anything i wanted and there's also that rom- romanticness of like i'm in the military i wear a uniform um i wanted to look like the pretty lady on jag I wanted to look like her. So that was, like, part of the reason I joined. By the way, like, as we get deeper in this, too, like, if I ask you anything that you don't want to answer, just tell me. Just, like, set your boundaries, you know? No, and I'm actually going to – I'll say something that you can, like, put wherever you want. Um, But I did, like, come up with something in the car this morning where I was like, I think I need to say this. Yeah, go Um, So this is not to – relieve the stigma of asking somebody if in the military or anybody if they've ever killed someone that is never an okay question to ask someone i don't care maybe if it's your spouse if it's your spouse that's between you and your spouse don't ask your grandpa don't ask your vietnam vet uncle don't ask a dude on the street with a veteran's hat don't ask somebody you meet in a bar that's not okay the stigma i'm trying to take away is that as veterans like it's okay to have these conversations with somebody that you feel safe with 
or if you've experienced any kind of abuse or any kind of assault and you've had to defend yourself to the fullest extent, it's okay to, to have these conversations. These don't have to stay bottled up inside of you, but don't go asking people if they've killed someone. It's, it's honestly like of all of the questions I can, can get asked about, about the military, it is by far the rudest question I can get asked. Well, as you're um, saying that, first of all, thank you for saying that. I'm going to put that as a disclaimer at the top. And also thank you for feeling safe enough to allow this to be that space. I mean, this is like a really bad comparison, but imagine just walking up to people on the street and being like, hey, wait, were you raped? Like, have you been raped? You know, like what? Exactly. Why would and you do that? And I had a guy in, I was, I was on a date and... I had a guy ask me, I can't remember why it came up, but he asked me if I had ever killed someone. And I said, that's an incredibly rude question to ask. And he, it, and whatever it was, it, I can't remember the like back and forth anymore, but it ended with him saying, well, I've never killed. Oh, I was like, well, if, you know, if he'd ever killed anybody, would you want to answer that question? And he's like, I don't know. I've never killed anyone, but clearly you have. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? It was yeah. also a terrible date overall. Yeah. Okay, <coughs> let me think where I want to go with this next. So Okay. So you join. You give up your civilianness, as that's the clinical term I've come up with. Why did you choose the branch that you wanted to go into? Like why does someone or are you just put there? No, so you choose. Um so like you know, you have recruiters come to your high school and stuff and oh, they okay. try to convince you to join. I joined basically the branch that a lot of my family had been in that I was very familiar with that I I thought would look really good on resumes later in my life um and so I said I'm gonna join this one and so I went to the recruiter I said hey I want to join um you take a test called the ASVAB which basically it's sort of like an intelligence test um but it basically tells like how good you are at like spatial analysis and understanding how mechanics work and like all all sorts of stuff and you get one big number which is on a scale of one I don't know if it goes to one it goes up to a hundred and then within that they have these subcategories that you have like certain jobs in the military you have to have a minimum of like whatever score in these certain areas to do that job I got a 96 on my ASVAB I mean, like, 99s are, are not uncommon, um, but a 96 is pretty good. It got me any job I wanted in the military, and I decided, of all of the things I'd done in my life, and being a woman, and I wasn't very big at the time, um, I weighed, like, maybe 120 pounds, I wanted to be a machine gunner. Wow. And and I thought Why? that sounded fun. I I don't know. If I could go back and ask myself, I'd probably just punch myself in the face at the recruiter's office before I ever even joined. When um, when you say machine gunner, though, my first thought is that is a job where you kill people. You know, it's like A plus B equals C, unless you're a horrible machine gunner. It you know? didn't occur to me at the time. I, yeah, it, I understand. I, I, get that. I thought big gun go boom. Yeah. Like this is like 2014 when I'm like having these conversations with myself and... You know, like, Afghanistan was basically over. Iraq yeah. hadn't really been a thing in a long time. Like, there were some people over there. But, um, you know, like, like she wasn't really happening. That's so what I was, I was thinking, like, yeah. I was not like, 
yeah, I'm going to go to the range all day. Yeah. And I'm going to have it. I have this like very weird, even though like I had, I was very familiar with the military and I had dated almost exclusively military guys in college. I was like, oh, like I, I know what I'm doing. I had no idea. I had absolutely no fucking idea. Your parents or the people in your family, machine gunners who you had said? No. Um, okay. So... They drove boats. They were most mostly mechanics. Honestly, they were just various types of mechanics. Okay. So it's not like you had a mentor saying, this is what you're going to go through. This is like what you should know you will may experience any of that. You were like, you took it on by yourself. Yeah. And they literally handed me a list of jobs and they said, what do you want to do? And I, I, I didn't even look at the list. I said, I want to be a machine gunner. I, I came in like knowing what I wanted to do. And he was like, are you sure? And I'll never forget the, like, look on his face of, like, the fuck did you just say to me? And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And he goes, okay. All right. Let me let me put the paperwork together. Are you sure? And, like, it, and he keeps asking me, like, throughout this process. Because, um, Do you like, think people... he questioned it because you were a woman? Or do you think he questioned it because of the, just, like, the pure confidence in such a job? Even a man would question a man. Probably both. Yeah. I am very lucky that for the most part, I won't say 100%, but for the most part, every every man I was stationed with, they would kind of shit test me at the beginning, just like get get my vibe, basically. Like, like well, what's she about? And then they'd be like, she's a damn good machine gunner. But, All right, whatever. Guess we're doing this now. Yep. So I was very lucky in that way. And I recognize that not every, every woman in the military has that experience. The units I w- was was at were mostly men. I, I had women that were also very supportive. Um, but for the most part, my guys were, were super good about me. So you get this job. Where do you go? Or I know you're not going to say the place, but what happens next? Like, do they just hand you a machine gun? Or how does this all start going down? Yeah, so... so- Every branch is a little bit different, but for the most part, you go to boot camp or basic and you, um, you do your eight to 12 weeks, depending on what branch you're in. And that's basically breaking you down as an individual and bringing you up as your branch. So whether you're a Marine, uh, army, coast guard, whatever, like they are bringing you up as a, a soldier, a Marine, a sailor, a coastie, whatever you are. And then you go to a school for your job where you learn the ins outs of your job and you're there. It depends on your job, but you're there anywhere from like eight weeks to seven, eight, nine months, just depending on what, like, obviously like air traffic controllers in the military and medics and things like that. They go a little bit longer. Um, People that are really into like the, like the mechanics and the wiring guys and stuff, Mm -hmm. they also go for a really long time. Um, but so I went for eight weeks, learned how to be a machine gunner, and basically they teach you the, like, bare bones basics, and then you get to your unit and you learn what the real military is like. So I got to my first unit, and they were like, okay, this is what you do now, and taught me what that looked like in reality, what my day-to-day was going to be like. And my day-to-day was cleaning guns, taking logs of guns and ammo and like it wasn't very exciting um until I went on my first deployment and I went on my first deployment and we got on a mission and 
have to engage with the enemy. And in the movie, so like movies are kind of split 50-50. In movies, it's either like you're eye to eye and you kill somebody with your bare hands or they're like so far away that, and it's not really shown. Yeah. And, and you part see of like this, through a sniper lens and it's like a mile away and you just see like a figure go down. Yeah. Exactly. And we were a little bit closer and you can't use a machine gun against someone like the type of machine gun I was using. It's against the Geneva Conventions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the problem is, is that people move around and what you're shooting at because because when you machine guns aren't particularly um, like like if you've ever gone shooting with a handgun or a rifle or anything Mm -hmm. like on a range one at a time. Yeah. Like like you shoot, you look, you shoot, you look. Machine guns just go what they're so great at their job for um and somebody moved in front of what I was shooting at and it took me a second to like comprehend what I was seeing because like all of the sudden it wasn't the same color and I realized the term pink mist was an actual thing people turn into a, a cloud of meat and Mm. blood and it's it's a real thing um we finish what we're doing um and we go and try to figure out because they they've all gone at this point um so we we go and see what we can find and i'm looking at this dude that is like like clearly the because he was in the same spot i don't really go anywhere after Mm. you get shot by a machine gun you don't really move kind of right there and I'm looking at him and and I so I just start vomiting every just I don't even know if I had anything in my stomach like I don't even know if I'd eaten that day I don't remember anything about before this moment I just start vomiting and one of my guys comes up to me pats me on the shoulder and he's like it's gonna be all right like he he realizes what's happening that this like rite of passage just happened and and no one had prepared you for that like before you guys deployed is there, you were saying kind of, at first you were just like cleaning guns and doing all that. Was there then a conversation of like, we're going to get to this place and you're going to see some real shit? I, so I don't remember it. So like the, the like time between joining and my first deployment is kind of like a, not a blur in a bad way. It's just kind of like stuff happened. There were lots of briefings, death by PowerPoint, like. So I'm sure at some point somebody said to me, like, hey, like, like, shit's gonna get real. But there was, there's no real, and and this is different for everybody. This is different for every unit. Um, and this may have been very different from, like, a guy deploying to Afghanistan in 06 had. Mm-hmm. Like, these are very different experiences. But there's no, like, chesty pooler giving you this like we're all gonna die like men speech before you go on a deployment like that just doesn't happen um but there is a lot of you write your will um you make sure you have your affairs in order you make sure everybody knows where all your paperwork is when you join the military everybody gives a blood sample so that they can identify you you get tattoos to make sure if you get blown up that they can identify your parts which is not a military mandated thing. That's just the thing everyone does. Um, wow, there's something called something called meat tags, which is literally your dog tags tattooed on your side, so that if all of your arms and legs get blown off, they can identify your torso. 
which is super fucked up. And that's mostly like an earlier, one of my really good friends um, is an Afghanistan vet and mm-hmm. he has meat tags. I don't have meat tags. I have lots of other tattoos, but that is not one I have. There's conversations and there's an overall tone of like, we all might die, but like, it's for the cause. Yeah. It's kind of well, like that's a cult. what you were saying earlier of, of there was the kind of romanticized version of it all. I think as a listener, like as you were saying, it's 20, you know, 15, 16, 17. So we're not like at active war, the thought is, as civilians here, right? Right. So I don't know how much you can answer this too, but to the best of your ability, like why were you going where you were going and why, like what, what made it situation where you were, you had to kill someone? Yeah. So, so I can talk about it. It's not that I can't, it's that Mm -hmm. I'm choosing not to, to not identify myself. There was a, what we call a clear and present danger. And we were engaging with who we were engaging with because we needed them to stop doing what they were doing in that moment. Um, So we weren't really out trying to kill people. We were trying to stop them from doing what they were doing. And unfortunately, people died in this process. Okay, so so jumping back to that moment, we're somewhere in the world that's not the United States. My guess is not Canada either. No. And not Canada. When when you were talking about the, was it called pink dust? Pink mist. Pink mist. And you threw up. Was that from your shot? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so that was, um, like, it was very clear from looking at him that he had gotten hit with multiple machine gun rounds. And mm-hmm. basically different different guns shoot different size bullets. The bigger the bullet, the more damage it's going to do. Machine gun bullets are pretty damn big. So, like, if you think of, like, a standard handgun round, it's, um, like, yay big. Mm-hmm. Do, it, do it over here. It's about yay big. The machine gun rounds that I had were about this big wow. and about this big around. Yeah, it's probably a little big. About that big around. They do some damage. They they do more than just poke holes. Yeah. Um, were you the only machine gunner there? I, so there's there's what's called an A gunner and a B gunner. Um, mm-hmm. So there's like the person that's actually like shooting the machine gun. The B gunner can also do that job. Um, in this particular case, I was the A gunner. My B gunner was the one like reloading when I finished, like finished all the rounds that I had in what I had and he would reload for me. It was clear to you that this person was the first person you had killed. Yes. Yeah. Got it was It was very obvious to me. And I grew up very nonviolent. My family did, other than having been in the military, which they saw as this duty and Growing up poor, you don't have a lot of options. So you join the military to, like, try to make something of yourself. We did not grow up as, like, particularly violent people. We did not glorify, like, the killing of terrorists and things. Like, it was something that we saw as necessary, but was not something that we glorified. Um, And I grew up that, like, violence was not the answer to things. So I'm, like, I'm looking at this guy... And it's kind of this instantaneous moment of, like, what the fuck have I done? Because I was raised Catholic, and I don't think I've ever been particularly religious. But when you are faced with something that questions everything that you think that you have known about yourself, 
it's a religious fucking experience. And I was yeah. like, thou shalt not kill as a commandment. And I have killed someone. We get back to where we were, like, sleeping, essentially. And they they go to debrief me with the chaplain, um, which is pretty common. So the chaplain in the military is, like, social work, therapy, religious advisor. But it doesn't really matter what type of religion they are. So you could get, like, a Muslim chaplain in your unit. And that's just who you've got. Like, the, it's, and it doesn't matter. They don't. They don't proselytize. They don't care what you are. They're there to, like, take care of your spiritual well-being. So they send me to the chaplain. And I'm talking to the chaplain. And he goes, what do you need? And I said, I need to talk to a Catholic chaplain. And he said, I am Protestant. What What is it that you need? I said, I need to give confession. Which is, like, a core tenet of Catholicism is you confess your sins to a priest. Um, they give you basically like a list of prayers to do or like how to repent and you are absolved of your sins and you can move on with your life and he said i can get one on the sat phone satellite phone and i said no like i i need to see a priest like i need to give confession in in like the right and proper way like this is i didn't like hit a cat with my car like i have i have killed a human being and he's like i i don't and he tried and like this is a much longer conversation that I'm making very brief, but he, he's basically like, I don't know what to do for you. And I said, I don't either. Um, so then I didn't eat for a week. They would bring me food. I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't move. It was just completely fucked. And so finally they, the, all of the highest ranking people in my unit and the, the head cook, which they have different names, but the, basically the guy that, is in charge of all of people that cook our meals. They sit me down and they're all basically standing around me. And they said, we are not leaving here until you eat something. What will you eat? And I said, a grilled cheese and tomato soup. And I have never seen anybody make grilled cheese and tomato soup so fast in my life. I'm not sure where they got the stuff for it. <laughs> um, because it was not anything we had eaten anytime recently. <laughs> I'm eating. And they're like, do you still need to talk to the chaplain? And I said, I think I'll be okay for a little bit. And and I got to see the chaplain like a week or two later and gave confession and was overall fine. As fine as you can be when your entire world has shifted. Had you given confession throughout your life? Like, was that something that you were used to or it was just, as you said, in this moment that where something so religious, even when you're not that religious happens, you wanted to go towards religion? I... So I had definitely given confession before. It had been a very long time. It wasn't I, a daily thing of yours to do. No, 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 no. Got this it. was, like, not a common occurrence. This was, like, not no. something I did on a regular basis. But that being said, the, so the, the first time you kill someone is horrible. Second time is a lot fucking easier. I didn't vomit. But the, the one thing I did was in talking to the chaplain, I was like, look, I know that the people that... I might be hurting are not necessarily Catholic and like I have no idea what they are um, and I don't know who they are but can can I give last rites as like a person because I know that like when there's no Catholic chaplain around or you know Catholic priest around um, you can give last rites so there's there's seven rites in the Catholic Church and it starts with baptism and it ends with your last rites and your last rites are 
your final confession, what they call the viaticum, which is communion that you get that's supposed to hold you over into the afterlife. Basically your, your last meal, same general idea. And like basically this blessing, like this blessing that the priest gives, that he gives you and then you die, basically. And you can get last rites a whole bunch of times. Like if you, they think you're dying, they'll give you last rites and you can get them again. Yeah. Um, if you don't end up dying. So I asked the priest, like, can I get blast rates? Because I know if there's no Catholic priest, you can do it. But it's, like, super weird. And, like, I I didn't know. And he goes, I honestly don't have a good answer. Let me get back to you on that one. And I said, cool. Whatever. Um, so I guess he goes and, I don't know, talks to other priests. I don't, I don't know how priests work. And he comes back and he's got this little laminated piece of paper for me. And it's in English on one side, and the other side is the language of the country that I was in, or the area that I was in. He said, this is last rites. This is for you to keep in your vest and to use as you see fit. And I, and, and so I asked him some more, like, logistical questions, because, like, there's supposed to be holy water and anointing oil involved. And he said, you can use whatever liquid you have. Because the point is not that it has been blessed. The point is that you are doing this for somebody. And I think at one point he asked me, like, is this for you or is this for the other person? And I was like, both? Like, yeah. I don't know. I'd want somebody to do it for me. So the next time that I killed somebody, similar situation, really nothing to write home about as far as, What like, was the gap, the time frame, though? A couple of weeks. Okay. So the next time it all happens and we're assessing the damage, seeing what's up. And I realized the guy's not dead quite yet. Like, I don't think he was conscious, but he still had a heartbeat. So I pulled the little thing out. I gave last rites. I gave last rites with water from a water bottle, which if there's Catholics watching this are probably like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, that's not the no, way it I don't works. Think anyone can judge but, like, the priest said it was good. So, part of it is, like, you go through their stuff and you see if you can identify them, get any information off of them. And he was the first name I had. Mm. I wrote it down. And I wrote down, like, the approximate time, the date, and where it was. Is that protocol or is that just something you did for yourself? That was something I did for myself. There, okay. there are, like, there's paperwork involved. I don't know what that is because that wasn't yeah. my job. But this was for me. This was in my own personal notebook. And then I went back and I, I didn't have the name of the first person, but I added where it was, the approximate time, like, all of the, the information, like, approximate age. And so I did that for all 13. And, like, through this process, it was... It was getting really horrifying to me because you would find pictures of wives and children yeah. and families. And you realize, like, really quickly on that, like, just as much as you are doing your job, so are they. Like, they're not, they're not coming after you because they're, like, individually evil people. They joined the military or, you know, like, whatever they're in because they felt very strongly about the same thing you do, just the opposite side. Yeah. And and everybody can have a different opinion on that. That's my opinion of it. We were all just doing our jobs. And 
I got to go home. And they did. Until the day that I almost didn't get to go home. We were engaging with somebody. Um, I felt like I got punched. I didn't notice anything. I start hearing the, like, basically command to stop what I'm doing. Turn around and look and see what the issue is. And everybody goes ghost fucking white. And women's plate carriers are fitted to their bodies. Um, they, they follow the curvature of your body. So I can't see past my boobs. So I run my hands down and I realize I've got a giant fucking hole in my stomach. So I, um, I got on a helicopter and, it, you know, this, there's other stuff in there. I don't really yeah. remember it. Um, did you stay I, conscious? Yeah, I was conscious the whole time. Definitely in shock looking back, um, because I got in the helicopter and, um, one thing I did was I had a, like, snacks in my vest. So I'm telling the medic, like, I... He's like, are you in any pain? I was like, I mean, I hurt a little bit, but like, mostly I'm just really hungry. Because I realized, because I had gotten shot in the abdomen, that I, my body in shock was saying, you're not in pain, you're really hungry. Wow. Um, sort of like when you get nauseous when you're hungry, like same, mm. s- same thing, I guess. And, and I'm like, I have snacks, just like, let me eat something. And he's like, okay, where are they? I would, so I point as much because I'm on a bodyboard, board point as much as I can to where it is on my chest and he looks at me for a second dead in the fucking eyes and ru- rustles around in his medic pouch for a second pulls something out and says night night and I woke up three days later at a military hospital and he had pulled out a ketamine pen um which is it's sort of like an EpiPen. ketamine is an anesthetic um some people take it recreationally, but it yeah. does um, it does a really good job at um, basically making you not remember things. So he was he realized I didn't know what happened or had no idea how bad it was and didn't want me to stay awake for any more of it. And then when I was going when I got to the hospital, they kept me under for a couple of days um, to basically stabilize me. I woke up and I had an agreement with my next of kin. Uh, that they would not come to me or call the rest of the family until they knew either I was imminently dying or I talked to them. Like mm-hmm. those, we had set these rules before I left. So I wake up and the nurse is standing there because they, they were like purposefully waking me up. So she's kind of waiting for me to wake up and she's like, hey, um, how you feeling? I was like, I almost feel very good. I'm really nauseous. I'm in a lot of pain. She's like, yeah, yeah, probably I could see that. Uh, Do you know where you are? And I was like, no, I have no idea. Because I was here the last time I was awake. And she's like, that's fair. She tells me where I am. Were you in the same country that you had been shot? No, I was back in the United States when I woke up. Whoa. So I woke up in a completely different country, thousands of miles away from where I fell asleep. Had no idea where I had been. I had no idea where my stuff was. Had had no idea. So I asked her if... So my first, like, real question was had my next... Had they had she, to, like, personally talked to my next of kin? And she said, yes. Um, I talked to him. The doctor talked to him. Uh, we told them that 
we were going to wake you up. Um, so, uh, they want you to call them. And I said, do I have to do it right now? And she said, absolutely not. Um, so I asked her a couple more questions. I wanted some water. I wanted to know what had happened to me. Um, and so she answers all of my questions. And so I call my next of kin and they're like, well, do you want me to come there? And I said, no, we're going to fucking stare at each other. I don't want to see your stupid face. And they were like, okay, well, just call Do you want me to tell anybody? I was like, fuck no. Don't, don't fucking call people. I don't want people here. And so slowly I, I got better, eventually went home. What was your injury? But, you had been shot in the stomach. Yeah, I got shot, got shot in the abdomen with a large caliber rifle round. Basically, like, absolutely tore my insides up. Um, I still live with that physical damage. Mm -hmm. um, I've had to have surgeries because of it. I have multiple surgeries because of it. I broke ribs. I ruptured organs. I had a lot of internal bleeding. Um, I had a lot of bruising. I was bruised up for, like, six or seven months afterwards. Do you think in that moment where the medic, when you said, you know, my snacks are here that then he decided to do the ketamine hit. Like, what what did he see, or? He realized that I didn't know how bad it looked. Because I, I haven't seen it. I, yeah. I, could, I, like, physically could not mm -hmm. see it where it was. So he didn't want to, like, make it worse. And he's, like, because medics in the military are not, like, nurses. They, they get a lot of autonomy on deciding what to do. I was logistically um, speaking for a second, like, okay, you're shot thousands of miles away. You're then taken in a helicopter, and then is that helicopter to a medic base, and then you're flown to the U.S., like, before a surgery? Like, how, I just don't understand how you stayed alive that long. Yeah, so they, so, so there's somebody there that starts to stop, and it depends on the injury, but basically, like, let's say you get shot. Somebody is there and, and you're all taught, everybody, medic or not, is taught how to, like, stop the bleed. So they're trying to stop the bleeding. They're applying pressure. They're calling for the, the medical evacuation. The helicopter comes, picks me up, takes me to, and this is sort of anybody, so I'll just talk in, like, general terms. Mm -hmm. They're going to take you to the closest medical facility that they can that will treat your injuries. So, like, let's say, like, your leg is catastrophically broken, but you're not bleeding out. You might go a little farther to a different medical unit where if you get shot in the chest, that's mm -hmm. going to be a different situation. But then you might take another helicopter or you might be at a base that has a an actual, like, landing strip and you will get on a flight. I went straight to the United States because of where I was. Um, but you may go to... So if you're in Afghanistan, you would go to Landstuhl, Germany, generally. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you'd go to England. And they would further stabilize you there until the, you know, like 10-hour flight back to generally, at that time, Bethesda Naval or Walter Reed, which are now the same hospital um, as Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. So I was... Taken to a hospital because of where I was. It was close enough to a hospital. Um, was stabilized at the hospital and then was flown um, to my final destination hospital. And that's where I woke up. That is where I left from. But this was a very roundabout way of getting to... I did not... It, it settled in as I was in the hospital that 
we were all just doing our jobs and I happened to be very lucky every time I went on a mission and came home and they didn't, that I got to until I basically didn't. Yeah. Um, and that, that was, that was horrifying. And I have to live every day with knowing that like, I, like <laughs> my, my significant other made this joke the other day in talking about me doing some volunteer work was, well, tell the people that you, and their kids, tell the kids you volunteer with, like, if they want to act up, you've killed men and you'll do it again. And I'm okay with him making that joke. Like, that's, that's not the issue. But it's like, it's weird to think that I can say that about myself. Like, I could actually say that to somebody else. No, it's a classic also, don't judge a book by its cover because even though people watching this won't really see you, but like sitting here with you today, if I were to like be walking with you on the street, I wouldn't think like that woman, one has killed people, two is gonna protect everyone right now. Like you just look like a wholesome like woman who would like bake me something and you know, like we'd hang out and watch a movie. You know what I mean? But you also are that woman, right? Like, yeah, that's absolutely. I was gonna thing. say like, I will absolutely bake you something like, <laughs> I mean, I've got acrylics. I like yeah. getting facials. Like, and I love. And I work... Thank you for saying all this too, because I think, I think there is such a stigma that like, of what a military person looks like. Yeah, everybody thinks of the like cropped haircut, you know, the buzz cut, um, the tactical like tack pants, like cargo pants, mm-hmm. and the like fitted T-shirt. And like, don't don't get me wrong, like. That guy in my head, real good looking. Um, but that's yeah. not what most... And, and not to say that a lot of veterans don't look like that, but, like, my really good friend that is also a combat veteran, if you look at him, like, long enough, you can see it. And once you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see it. Mm-hmm. For the most part, he just looks like a dude that works out with an office job. Like, yeah. until you see his tattoos and you know him. Like, I lived with them. He was yeah. my roommate. I know everything about him. Held him while he cried. For a second, like you've told us about your first two kills and then you being shot, you know, in, in the, in the quick sense that this podcast goes, it almost seems like those moments happen. And then there's this calmness where you can like search a body or your people look at you and say, Oh no, let's get you out of here. Like, I just want to clarify, like these aren't just something happens. Then everyone pauses and is like, let's all take care of something like yeah like there's there's still stuff going on there's still a like a, a conflict a war, a war yeah. happening around you there's not a pause um, yeah everyone's yeah, no. someone's hurt yeah no and especially like if you kill somebody on the other side and you're all fine you keep going like it sucks yeah. that dude died but like well that's what that... i was gonna say so for for the people that you killed when you were giving you know the last of right i say that right last They're, rights but yeah the last um right. Yeah, so that's all happening, like, after everything is said and done, and okay. it is it is a safe zone to do. I'm not doing this with bullets whizzing overhead. I'm doing okay. this after the fact. But, like, dying, dying doesn't always happen like it does in the movies. There are some people that are dead by the time they hit the ground. But a lot of times, while you may, not, may or may not be conscious... The act of dying takes a little bit longer than people realize. Um, and I think anybody that's even ever watched a grandparent die, like, realizes that that, that is a process. Yeah. Um, and so some people were dead by the time I got to them. 
some of them were missing very critical body parts and some of them were still breathing and moving around and screaming and that is its own thing um and not not every proper militaries like like organized government militaries generally will take their injured with them when they retreat mm -hmm. non-organized militaries like militias and things like that will sometimes leave them and they are just part of the cause and it it really depends like it that is not to speak for every you know every part of every what about your 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 specifically the person on the other side for the most part they left them hmm. um especially if they were dead dead they would leave them and sometimes they would come back for them if we left them and i that is that could be two hours all by itself talking about um when you leave somebody and when you take them. But I I felt like in doing last rites that even if that person stayed there for the rest of humanity and the rest of eternity, that even if we didn't believe, you know, like they weren't Catholic and they didn't believe in Catholic God, maybe whoever they find peace with, because, you know, like Catholic last rites don't necessarily say like, to Catholic God we send you. Yeah, it's basically course. just like, may you... Find, like, may you find peace in the Lord, essentially. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's me, Lord is the same, but, like, maybe they found peace with theirs. Now, again, you don't have to answer this question, but I understand doing last rites when you get to someone and they are dead dead. What would happen when you got to someone and they were screaming or they were still alive? Were you able to do it then? You can... There's other things you do in that case. And I'm going to not answer the rest of that only because okay. it's, it is not stuff you're proud of and it's not always by the book. And sometimes humanity has to take over. Yeah. Um, but it is very hard to watch somebody that you know is going to die. Yeah. Actively. Like, writhing in pain dying. Yeah, like, I mean... Pe peaceful deaths are one thing. Like, it, it was very peaceful to watch, you know, like, some of my... The members of my family passed. They were at peace. Yeah. Um, there is no peace and death in war. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like happen. you just... You hope that that first hit kills them right away. Yeah, kind of. of and you kind of hope that for yourself, too. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because, I mean, no like, one... one second you're there and one second you're not, you don't, you don't know what fucking hit you. Yeah. So, ju just um, out of curiosity, timeline-wise, in my head, when were you shot between your 13 kills? Uh, after number 13. Okay, that's what I, I was like. Did you go yeah. back out once? No, so I was not given the chance to go back. Would um, you have? Uh, so I stayed in the military, uh, but I did not go to another, like, overseas deployment unit. I did I did not deploy back to that area again. Um, I did some other deployments. Because the military goes to, like, disaster zones and stuff. So I did of some of that kind of thing. And shortly thereafter, um, I got married. I moved. Um, I got divorced. And then I got cancer. Um, Whoa. And... <laughs> 
These are like sub-podcast episodes in themselves. <laughs> I had I had breast cancer. Um, so I was treated for oh. breast cancer. Um, and I... You're a, and gun, this was, a sh- gunshot survivor a breast, and a breast cancer survivor. And a sexual assault survivor. Like and a sexual assault survivor. But I did not find my unit supportive. Um, and I basically, because I had had a major medical issue... Um, I had an out to get out of the military and I was, I was about six months before the end of my contract anyway. Um, so I said, I'm done. Um, so I went on with my civilian life and I have worked a desk job my entire civilian career. Oh my God. The mental shift that you have had to slash have to go through on so many levels. I mean, women who live a civilian life and get cancer, that's a mental shift. Women who live a civilian life and are sexually assaulted, that that's something. I mean, you have had these, like, I would love a brain scan of your brain. That sounds so, I mean, I wouldn't know how to read it. I have no capability of that. But you know how We they need can, a doctor and an MRI. We need a doctor and we need an MRI. I mean, your brain, the trauma that it has been through on so many levels must have just this the most insane like fight or flight or like as you were ptsd i mean that's in your submission yeah so i have done um i've been in multiple experimental treatment studies for treatment resistant depression and treatment resistant post-traumatic stress disorder i have a service dog i have found very little relief i have found some and a lot of it is time and space and therapy and medication. It is a combination of things. Mm-hmm. But I cannot go to the mall without panicking. Um, I cannot go to a sporting event. Um, it is it is a little bit different when I'm with my significant other um, and my service dog because I feel very safe around them. And I have done a lot of work specifically on crowds um, because that's a huge trigger don't have a good reason why but like crowds yeah um are a trigger i i am incredibly over prepared i carry a trauma kit with me um if i am for the most part where i live you have to be in a car so i have one in my car if i am walking around somewhere um i carry it with me i always have an extensive first aid kit i trained as an emt um, at one point in my military career, so I have that knowledge. My I have snacks, food, drinks, you name it, I have it um, in in my purse, in my book bag, whatever it might be, in the hopes that if something happened again, that I'd be able to like do something about it. And um, when you say happen, is it happen to you or happen in a situation? to somebody else it would really be both um if something were to happen to me if i were to get shot stabbed whatever something horrible were to happen to me like that um that's one thing but also i'm hyper aware of what is happening around me yeah so that like if i so like i was um walking in a pretty populated area one day and a Guy was sitting at a red light, decided he didn't want to wait anymore. Turns out he was drunk. He moved forward, not very fast, but he knocked over the woman that was walking in front of me and also tapped my service dog. My service dog reacted like she was supposed to. She got down on her belly um, and basically just like waited to figure out what was happening, which is in, in a situation like that is what she's trained to do. 
the woman's only like five feet in front of me. So I go and talk to her and make sure she's okay. She just got the wind knocked out of her. She was totally yeah. fine, but she was panicking because she couldn't take a breath in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can't take a breath out and then you, your whole body panics. Yeah, it's the worst. So even in that situation, like I was hyper prepared for that situation for no other reason than it, I think it makes me feel a little bit better. It really doesn't. It makes everything worse because then I feel like I, I'm like waiting for that to happen because I know what to do. Yeah. I have nightmares and luckily they make a medication for nightmares. It's actually a blood pressure medication. Gabapentin? No, um, it is uh, prezosin. Um, so it's a, it's a high blood pressure medication that they were testing on a bunch of people in the nineties, I think. And at that point, a lot of Vietnam veterans were starting to, you know, age a little bit and the Vietnam vets realized that, oh, I don't have as many nightmares anymore, but I also get night terrors where I don't know what's happening, but I wake up screaming, um, or panicking. Even with the medication. Even with medication, yeah. I wait, regularly wake up having panic attacks, um, even with medication and doing what I think is pretty well. Um, I, like I said, I have a service dog. She, is, she has absolutely changed my life, made everything so much easier to do. But all of that brings along, like, its own stigma of, like, people, like, we were at a sporting event a couple weeks ago and we were sitting down, my significant other was asking what I wanted to drink, because uh, he we, we sat down, got our seats, and he was going to go up and get drinks. And this woman sat down next to me, and I we had just sat down. And she starts talking to me, like, while I'm talking to my significant other, and I'm like, so I, like, I start answering her questions, because she asked me what kind of dog I had. And if she was a service dog, which is a dumb question, because it's on the yeah. side of hers. I really don't mind answering questions about the dog in the sense of like what breed is she mm-hmm. how old is she those sort of like i get yeah. them all the time it really is mine she's a dog in a public space it's but when people it. ask why do you have her exactly and yeah. what she meant when she said what kind of dog is she was what the fuck is wrong with you that you need a dog you look fine yeah because uh, i was denied from a bar during a bar crawl with her once um because i quote had both my legs I can have both my legs and still need a service dog. Dumbass. I got denied from a government building once. Um, That did not go over well. We have been discriminated against in the emergency room. I have been very lucky that I have my significant other that is um, willing and able to handle her um, in in the instance that I cannot. It is a very difficult thing to to deal with. I, I remember being... 18 19 20 and a sorority girl and like care I always had a little bit of anxiety but like looking back so carefree no real obligations to the world other than like you know just doing well in life and now I walk around every day with these like ghosts of my past and I so desperately want to be normal again I was gonna say do you resent just the average person no because what I did Mm -hmm. nobody else made me do that no nobody else forced me and in the situations I did not necessarily put myself in each individual situation on purpose fully knowing Mm -hmm. but everything that led up to that was 
my own doing. And that's nobody else's fault. The people I resent out of any of it um, are the people that knew me before and didn't want to know me after anymore. And that happened a lot with some of my sorority sisters. They did not want to know me after after I joined the military. I don't know. I, I, I don't have a good answer. Because I did not... Once they, once I, and nobody ever said, I don't want to be friends with you because you're in the military now. That would honestly almost be easier if people just fucking said what they thought versus a silent. Exactly. I just want to be able to like, wake up one day and not worry about like, fuck me, I'm going to hell because like, like, I killed these people and... I have gone to, I think I said, like, damn near extreme lengths to try to balance my karma. Mm-hmm. Um, I foster animals, especially, like, neonatal, like, days-old kittens. I volunteer sometimes excessively during the Black Lives Matter protests in the city I lived in. I live in. I volunteered, went down. I am the person that is always there for everybody. I am always trying to find the answer to a question, you know, the solution. I I am always just trying to, like, make the world a better place because I know f- that there were other people that I made it a much worse place for. And in that, that weighs on my conscience. And even recently, within the last, like, year... I gave confession to a priest for the first time in a very long time. And you don't, like, once you confess to something, you don't have to bring it up again. You have been absolved and you are done. Mm -hmm. And I brought up the fact that I killed people again. And the priest, the priest asked me a very legitimate question because I did not lead up to this. Mm -hmm. And he goes, "Were were you a cop? Were you in the military? I was like, yeah, I was in the military. And he goes, Oh, then, like, I don't know why you're confessing because that's your job. Like, we, and he he quoted some Bible verse about, like, you know, essentially, like, we do our jobs because there are jobs. It was not out of malice, you know, like, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, it was not murder. Um, So, like, go say three Hail Marys and, like, move on with your life. And not in, like, a laissez-faire, like, I don't care about you way. Confession is not the place to get, I don't know what priests call it but it's essentially like therapy like they'll talk you through like your spiritual problems and confession is not that time confession is very much like in in there's a ritual to it but essentially you're in confess and you're out it's sort of a quick process but it it was just very funny to me that this guy was kind of like yeah no like you're doing your job you're like in the eyes of the lord as you know this priest sees it you're fine let's talk about um the support though for a second because I understand you know medication and and the the amazing service dog I mean that's unbelievable but in terms of military support like the only people you can relate to on that type of level are people who have gone through it I assume so does the military provide like support for you i don't want to speak for the military in the last couple years because i think that they've made an effort to better treat ptsd but Mm -hmm. when i was in the military 
there was a point in time where if you sought therapy that your um, security clearance was threatened, which I think might have been before my time, but, you know, like it was still a a rumor, basically. Um, you are not allowed to be on certain medications because they fear it will interfere with your job. Um, so I could not be on medication for my PTSD or risk being medically discharged. They do not encourage you to talk about it, really. Um, they encourage you to talk to someone if you think you're going to kill yourself. Yeah. But they don't actively encourage you to, like, seek support. There are support options out there. Every branch kind of has their own. But my my support really didn't come until I moved in with another combat veteran. And even then, it was almost unspoken. Like, we've had the conversations about what actually happened. Yeah. But they are... They are very unspoken understandings. Is that your significant other? No, it is not. My significant other is not a veteran. Um, how does that he... work? I mean, how do you date someone who hasn't, who can't? I am very lucky. I am very lucky in that I have somebody very understanding who has been through... I am not lucky that he has been through trauma, mm-hmm. um, but he has been through other trauma and understands yeah. Um, he has his own mental health struggles. So I yeah. am very lucky that I have somebody that is willing to understand that I am not always that person. And he is my number one advocate in any situation. He knows when I am getting exhausted of dealing with people about the dog. He will tell people off politely, not so politely, depending on the situation, to not touch the dog, don't talk to me about the, you know, like very much that. He has been my advocate when I've been in the hospital and been sick and dealing with some of my injuries. Um, He's very supportive with um, my hobbies and stuff that I liked doing, you know, before and after the military. He's, he's really phenomenal. I am very lucky to have him. Hoping that you don't have to pay for like anything in your life out of what you have to medically go through. So I choose to use my private insurance over the VA. I do not trust VA healthcare. Mm. Um, I think the VA is one more way to die for your country. I know that the VA is striving to change that, but my local VA does not have a women's healthcare center. And I am a woman of childbearing age. I still need pap smears and I am not going through all of that. I'm very lucky that my entire professional career, I have had excellent health insurance that generally I have not had to pay full price for. It's mostly been subsidized by the jobs I've had. So I see very good doctors, but I live with pain that's not even just from my injury. The military wears on your body. They say that every year in the military ages you 10. Um, I have arthritis in my neck. I have arthritis throughout the rest of my back. I have issues with my shoulder. Um, I have issues with my left arm. I have just like a myriad of like my body breaking down issues like I'm not even 30 and my body is already going to hell in a handbasket only thing I'm thinking is I feel like people are gonna reach out and like want to help you um in some way (laughs) so okay then let me let me say this yeah so I don't I don't need help I don't need services I am in a healthy loving supportive relationship I have phenomenal um, mental health care practitioners that I work with. My therapist is amazing. She is, I just, I cannot, I just love her so much. I have an amazing psychiatrist that I have made huge strides with. I have been in several studies for experimental medication for PTSD. I have 
been in the presence of some of the best doctors in push military specific post-traumatic stress um in the world and i am for all of this i'm actually in a really good place i have a great job that i love i have a very supportive boss who is um i when i have therapy i end my day a little bit early because it was like the good therapy time she is incredibly supportive of that um she's incredibly supportive of my mental health needs, recognizing that I have anxiety and doing her best to like not leave me with cliffhangers to like just make me worry all day. Like she'll yeah. just tell me what our meeting about it later as well, yeah. which we'll talk about. My friends that have stayed with me or that I've made along the way are very supportive. I'm part of several veterans groups that are very supportive. When I've gone through hard times financially, I've had help um, from friends. You know, I... At the beginning of pandemic, I lost my job. Um, I had friends that brought me groceries that I still am trying to eat through, <laughs> you know, basically three years later. Yeah. I'm in a good place. But I'm doing this because people don't realize that, like, you... And, and people with mental health issues can understand, but I don't think we always realize for others that even though that, like, somebody might look fine... Or somebody might very much not look fine. There's a lot more to the story. I am like every other veteran with PTSD, but like I have my own very individual story. You very much do. And you have many chapters to it. And when you look at me, like it, your first thought is not going to be veteran with PTSD. No. Like, or breast cancer survivor or sexual assault survivor, any of those. But those aren't, you know, they're not scarlet letters. They're not printed on your face. We need to understand that, like, I'm very liberal in some senses, but I'm very much not a trigger warning person. Mm -hmm. Like, like if I know you and I'm your friend, like, I'm not going to do stuff that's going to upset you yeah. just to upset you. But you can't expect everybody to tiptoe around you all the time. But we also need to be respectful that, like, we all come from very different experiences. And if somebody tells you, no, I don't want to talk about that, or I need to talk about this, and I... I don't need you to understand. I just need you to listen. Yeah. Um, I don't need you to give advice. Yeah. Exactly. And not, I don't always need my problem solved. Sometimes I just want to talk about like, you know, like what happened. And I, I just want to say it out loud. I don't need to need you to fix it. I don't need you to find me a therapist. I have one. She's great. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't need help. This is not a, a cry for help. This is not an ask for help. Um, this is just me talking about it because I have the opportunity. Yeah, and, I and I'm so in a place. Thank you. I'm also in a place where I feel safe enough to. Yeah. Like where I I feel safe enough, like with myself, that I'm not going to go hurt myself or panic or freak out because I talked about it. Thank you for saying all that. Really, really, thank you for saying all of that. That's really, really important, and I will put that as a closing disclaimer. Um, since you haven't listened to this podcast, you don't know how we close out every podcast, which is an incredibly different pivot I ask and I will make an exception for you one if you don't want to do this two you can make it somewhere that you don't live but I ask everyone their favorite restaurant where they're from or just in the country and then I have a huge map of every guest where their favorite restaurant is and what they get there what is your favorite restaurant and what is your go-to meal that you get there so my favorite restaurant is somewhere we used to vacation all the time. It's called Yo Taco in Fort Myers Beach, Florida. It right. is a taco shack. 
and it does not have indoor seating. It's just like a counter basically. And I don't know if they have it anymore, but they used to have a 420 special. It was $4.20 wow. <laughs> and it was two tacos and a pop for $4.20. Oh my god. I feel like with inflation it, it's now a 620 special, but yeah. Hang on, I'm gonna look at their website. Their oh, the 420 special is now 550. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and follow the podcast wherever it is you listen to it so that we can bring you more unexpected stories by ordinary people. And if you didn't like the episode, forget what I just said and just please don't tell anyone.